Hello and welcome to episode 37 of Linux After Dark. I'm Joe. I'm Chris. I'm Gary. And I'm Dalton. Welcome back, chaps. So today we're going to talk about a couple of things. Let's start with boutique distros. This is something we got talking about in our little Telegram group. A very much boutique distro seems to have died. Let's not name names and get into that. But that's what kicked off the conversation. And we kind of got into the question of what even is a boutique distro? Like, is Ubuntu Mate or Zubuntu, does that count as a boutique distro? I don't think so, but who argued that they were? Yeah, so I don't think that they're boutique on the same level as some other smaller distros. But I do think that they're not quite in the same league as something like Debian or Ubuntu or OpenSUSE, right? Say they've got a relatively small number of maintainers, in some cases just one maintainer. But in the case of Ubuntu Mate and Ubuntu, they do have a reasonable governance model and they do have people behind them that are well-known and well-respected in the industry. So they're a little bit different. But when you think about some of the distros where there is a real bus factor, I think that's kind of more what I was getting at. Yeah, I mean, I've not really distro hopped because I haven't daily driven some of these booty distros, but I've had a look and there's been times with some of them. And again, I'm not going to name names because they're often small passion projects with very small teams behind them. Or as you say, Gary, there's one person sometimes driving an awful lot of development, but they're using SourceForge, for example, now. And... (laughs) That is a very unreliable thing to do, I think, personally. The amount of times where something that you're doing on that distribution calls out to a SourceForge to get something and just stops dead, and then you just can't do that thing until that's resolved, that's difficult. Or, you know, if it is the single person, if they disappear and there isn't some kind of mechanism for somebody else to take over when you can't communicate with them, it is quite difficult. And I don't want to do them down because in a way it's good that it's possible to do that. But whether or not I trust, you know, there's a certain level where you wouldn't want to be trusting critical things to it. But surely it's very easy to move distros because it's ultimately the applications that count. And if they're all fast, then you can just copy your configs over and just move to a different distro. Well, yes and no. I think some of the ones I'm thinking of are built in a slightly different way. So if you build something around Slackware, for example, and you have your own custom SFS modules, which some of the puppy derivatives do, for example, then yes, you could change distributions. But if there's like a unique selling point of that boutique distro, for example, that it runs really well on a USB stick in that way that it's put together, then it becomes a bit more difficult. But again, I I, I wouldn't use those as the first port of call for my daily computing. They're quite handy. Like I have some USB sticks in my bag where at a pinch, they're available to boot some kind of persistent environment that has some SSH keys on encrypted and a little keypass vault, which has some stuff. So if I'm really in a pinch and like my computer burst into flames, I could go to another one really quickly and boot that. That's when it starts to become difficult. If you're porting your daily driver, then yeah, you can back up your dot files. You can usually get the majority of the software you want to use packaged. But if it starts to become 
niche in what it does in its construction, I think it become can become quite difficult. I think not only that, there's a real learning curve to changing distros, right? Like I could move fairly easily between Ubuntu and Debian and other Ubuntu flavors, right? But if I'm suddenly forced to, in a hypothetical world where Ubuntu goes away, move to SUSE, I've got to relearn all of the packaging stuff. I've got to, in some cases for packages like Nginx, change where all my configs are stored and things like that. So there is a definite learning curve. And I don't think I would be as productive if the distro that I rely on for my daily driver suddenly disappeared. Yeah, that's what's difficult, isn't it? Because quite often the reason the boutique distro springs up is because they want to go in a different direction. So sometimes that means forking an existing package manager or even writing a a new one. And that is kind of the gift and the curse, isn't it? You've come up with this great thing. And sometimes it can be really interesting what someone comes up with, but if it's not got the momentum and the huge backing, then it is difficult. I think I've seen for a lot of newer projects with package managers that the reason why their package manager is better at the moment or faster or whatever it may be is just because they haven't had the legacy of needing to deal with as many problems as Debian or Fedora have yet. And eventually, once all these problems crop up as they always do when you're maintaining a distribution of software, there's going to be no difference anyway. But what about the idea of injecting some excitement into your computing? I think that's okay, but I do feel it a little bit. You know, if if we're talking about Obviously, I daily drive Ubuntu Mate, and it's not just Wimpress. There's there's a whole team of people. There's a good, solid body of contributors. But I would be naive to think if he decided one day to totally stop working on it, that would be a loss. Other people would step in and pick it up. But I call it the Wimpress polish. Like There's definitely some of his character in... It's things that he wants to do that happen to align with what I want to do on a computer. And he comes up with ideas or sees other ideas and takes them and makes sure that they're integrated. So there is sometimes a slight fear. And yeah, I could change, but I have chosen this distribution specifically, having looked at other ones. And it is where I've landed. So it's not that I couldn't move to something else. I just don't want to. (laughs) It's the, the key thing. I think for me, I've just been burned one too many times. Like There are many, many distros I've chosen and daily driven over the years that have just gone by the wayside or gone in a direction that I don't like. Like I used to daily drive Crunchbang back in the day and um, <laughs> that went by the wayside and of course was eventually replaced by Bunsen Labs. But for a long time, I would have been you know, without anything or you know, running a really, really old distro. And I think I'm just at the point where I'm not sure I want my distro to be exciting. I want the software and the applications that I use on top of the distro to be exciting, sure. But the thing that underlies everything I do and that I rely on every day to make money and record a podcast and back up pictures of my kid and all that kind of stuff, I just want that to be kind of boring and just work. But Crunchbang, you could just remake out of Debian quite easily, couldn't you? I mean, sure, I could have done, but it's like Chris said, you wouldn't get that level of polish. There was a lot of stuff that Crunchbang did out of the box, you know, certain configs and things like that that aren't there. It'd be like moving from Ubuntu Mate to Debian with Mate installed. It's just not quite the same thing. And what about in the age of flat packs, for example? It doesn't really matter what distro you're using. You're going to get the same applications from Flathub. 
as long as Flatpak works on the distro. I think at that point you kind of run into practicality of the situation, where because you're using a distro that has fewer users, the Flatpak isn't being tested on it. And even though these packaging formats are supposed to be universal and never break, we are human after all, and they will break. So they're going to break more on your boutique distro, probably, than on your non-boutique one, which is both a blessing and a curse. And Flatpak also makes some assumptions about things that are available on the distro, right? Like it wants Fuse 2 to be available, which isn't available in all distros and things like that. So it's not a perfect silver bullet for everything. Yeah, I mean, on Mate to this day, because there's a bit of a standoff between groups of developers, Flatpaks have as super user in brackets after a lot of them because of the way they're calling the namespace, I think, of the applications. It's not running as root if you look at the underlying processes, but for whatever reason, Mate is interpreting it. So the first time I installed a Flatpak and ran it, I was like, why the hell is this running as root? And then I looked up and there's a GitHub issue where there's quite a bit of back and forth and it's closed and then it's reopened, then it's closed again. And people say, that's your job, that's not my job. And people are like, well, it's putting people off because other people, like when I first started my job, people look over my shoulder and go, why are you running that as root? I'm, like, I'm not running it as root. It's just, <laughs> it's just a bug. It's definitely not running as root. So it isn't a catch-all. And, and, you know, as much as we like to think these universal packaging formats are going to work out, it's not quite happening. We keep plowing on and seeing what direction it takes us in, but I don't think they're a fix-all yet. I think that I wouldn't want any of the boutique distros to go away, and I wouldn't want people to stop making them exactly either, because even though a lot of problems are solved and solved and solved again, and then actually not solved at all in computer science, we do end up pushing something forward every time. And ultimately, a lot of these things get back up to RPM or dpackage or something that implements them in a more friendly way. So it's still worth using a boutique distro to have some fun, or as a daily driver if you accept all the terms and conditions that the software comes with no warranty. Yeah, I think I agree. Like If you look at the Steam Linux runtime, a lot of that came out of a boutique distro. And if it wasn't for the maintainer of that distro not liking Snap, we wouldn't have the Linux Steam runtime in the way we do now either. Yeah, as you were saying that, Dalton, I do think that's kind of where I land. One of the most exciting things about Linux for me at first was this world of discovery. You know, you could boot lots of distant distributions and you'd get a variety of experiences. And obviously, as you kind of mature into what you want to run in the long term, I think that seems to be a familiar pattern from a lot of people I speak to. You do tend to slow down after a while and think, okay, there is a lot of choice, but I'm going to choose this. I wouldn't want that to go away because I think that's part of the excitement when you first encounter running an alternative operating system, which you just don't really get in a lot of other places. Okay, this episode is sponsored by Tailscale. Go to tailscale.com. Tailscale is a VPN service that makes the devices and applications you own accessible anywhere in the world, securely and effortlessly. It enables encrypted point-to-point -point connections using WireGuard, which means only devices on your private network can communicate with each other. Unlike traditional VPNs, which tunnel all network traffic through a central gateway server, Tailscale creates a peer-to-peer -peer mesh network. It handles complex network configuration on your behalf, so you don't have to. 
Network connections between devices pierce through firewalls and routers as if they weren't there, so there's no need to manually configure port forwarding. Tailscale is available for Linux, Mac, Windows, Raspberry Pi and ARM, Android, iOS, Synology, and for devices that don't allow additional software to be installed, such as printers and other embedded devices, where you can set up a subnet router to act as a gateway, relaying traffic from your Tailscale network onto your physical subnet. So go to tailscale.com and try it for free on up to 20 devices. That's tailscale.com. Quick bit of admin then. First of all, thank you everyone who supports us with PayPal and Patreon. We really do appreciate that. If you want to join those people, you can go to linuxafterdark.net slash support. And remember, for $10 or more per month on Patreon, you can get an advert-free RSS feed that includes this show, Linux Downtime, and Late Night Linux. And if you want to get in contact with us, you can email show at linuxafterdark.net. So Gary, you recently went to FOSDEM. Yeah, as recently as today when we record, in fact. Yeah, you woke up in Brussels today as we uh, record. Yeah, I did. It's been a long day. Glad to be back in the UK, but yes. So did you have a good time? I did. This is my second FOSDEM. And I sort of went on a bit of a whim this year, not knowing if anyone I knew was going, not really knowing if too many listeners were going. But I thought, you know what? I fancy a weekend in Brussels, so I'm going to go for it. And yeah, I had a good time. FOSDEM is one of those conferences that I think everyone should go to at least once. So what did you particularly check out? What, what were the the things you remember the most? Well, I mean, it's Belgium, right? So every single time <laughs> FOSDEM starts out on the Friday night at the Delirium Bar. And uh, if you can imagine a bar full of people like us, that's pretty much it with very strong Belgian beer. <laughs> But for me, one of the things that always stands out is the hallway track, right? Like you get talking to all sorts of different people from different backgrounds who've got various different interests. And that's always really good. And in terms of talks, I just checked out a whole bunch across different tracks. The thing that always amazes me about FOSDEM talks is that there are so many of them that you could probably do a week-long conference and still not be able to see all of the talks. (laughs) So I've got a whole list of them bookmarked in the FOSDEM app to go and watch when the video is available on demand. But a bunch of stuff about containers, a bunch of stuff around kind of digital sovereignty was uh, a big topic this year, particularly for EU countries as they look to move away from some of the big cloud providers or certainly avoid some of the lock-in that comes with that. As well as a really good talk, actually, that talked about you know building a really basic architecture to run your entire business on Linux and free software. Just a whole bunch of stuff across various different tracks and a whole lot more that I've got to catch up on as well. Just taking a temperature of the conference at this point, it's been a couple of years since I've been, did you see anything for, say, open source security or the software bill of materials or anything like that? <laughs> the really enterprisey, corporate stuff? Yeah, I mean, there was some corporate stuff there. And you know, like you say, there are always talks where people have a solution and they build a talk around the solution that they have, <laughs> which happens at all conferences, right? I've even seen that at things like OGCAMP, which is on the kind of more hobbyist side of things compared to something like a FOSDEM. But yeah, I mean, there were there were talks around things like SBOM and security and all that kind of stuff. But I think, yeah, there are a bunch of different people going to FOSDEM for different reasons. There are people whose employer sent them, which was the case when I went three years ago, whereas this time I was there just for myself to have a weekend away. So I didn't watch so much of the enterprise stuff. So different strokes for different folks. So which talks did you attend? There was a really good talk I attended that I mentioned earlier 
that was around building a kind of open source solution to run your business on, but doing it in a way that was very simple. So it was effectively Nextcloud, email services, WireGuard, and Git services for a business. And the guy was basically explaining how he's managed to build this out just using three boxes and you know, have a reasonable set of architectures to run his business on, which is really interesting. And it gave me some ideas for how I might improve the stuff I run at home. Things like adding LDAP for single sign-on, key cloak for some additional security and that kind of thing. So that was a really good one. But I think the real highlight for me was a talk by Chris Nova that was about how she ended up running a Mastodon instance for a few friends, and then some billionaire bought Twitter, and suddenly the usage exploded of her Mastodon instance overnight. For context, she goes into how this was running on an old PowerEdge box in her basement, and suddenly she had to scale it to tens of thousands of users and build a community around it and all that stuff. And that was a really interesting talk as well, just about the challenges of scaling some of this stuff as we move more towards the Fediverse. Now, looking at the photos, I noticed something. Some of the talks in the massive rooms had empty seats, but then you always hear these stories about talks being absolutely packed and just being closed to people coming in, which seems a bit weird to me. Yes, I think it's hard to predict how popular a talk will be. And I think the guys at FOSDEM and the organisers are becoming more cognizant of that if they have a big name there the talks are in jansen which is a big big lecture hall or they put them onto the main track but yeah there are a lot of cases where rooms get full and it's in a university so they're very strict on room occupancy so one of the things i learned from the first time i went was make sure that you take a phone or a laptop and some kind of set of noise cancelling headphones because if you want to hear a talk you either have two choices it's get into a room super early or listen to it with a beer in the bar. For more context on that, a lot of the talks that end up in Janssen will have a couple of seats empty. It's usually not a lot, though. Especially when it comes to things like Matrix. Whenever Matrix is up there, the room's always full, standing room only, or people being turned away. But for example, there was a mobile Linux talk last time I went that was tepid. Not entirely full, but not super empty either. So, it's just... They're trying their best. Uh, a lot of the Birds of the Feather sessions will get full. When I was running Birds of Feather for mobile Linux and Pine64 stuff, those were definitely full, but they were in smaller classrooms as well. So you get what you get. So what about the nightlife aspect of it? The kind of after-conference, not quite hallway track, but the social track, let's say. What was that like? Say. So- I think it varies year on year and it depends who you end up bumping into and what kind of thing you're interested in. So a lot of the vendors tend to run events in the evening that are basically they rent out an entire bar in Brussels. This year I stayed away from quite a lot of that because I've got another conference to attend this week as we record. But yeah, basically everywhere you go in Brussels, there are people in FOSDEM t-shirts or people with ThinkPads running Linux. (laughs) Uh, It's quite strange. Like even this morning as I got on the Eurostar, you could very clearly see that there were a lot of Linux users and a lot of FOSH users sitting in the train station. So yeah, wherever you go, you're going to bump into some people. I was trying to find out how many people have attended in past years, and it seems to be about 8,000-ish is the number that gets quoted. Does that seem about right then? Yeah, I would say between eight and 10,000. There's definitely more people there than there was at like Linux Fest Northwest, for example, the last time I went there. 
you can get an idea of the numbers in the closing presentation. They always give stats from the Wi-Fi controllers, which is <laughs> as good a metric as any for how many people were there, although that's being slightly skewed by uh, things like MAC address privacy and things. But yeah, that seems about right. Somewhere between eight and 10,000 feels like the right number. Worth noting that they don't track anyone who goes there Really, they don't have a badge system or anything. You just walk in, and you can walk in at any entrance on the campus, and you're at Fosdem. Yeah, absolutely. It's a completely non-ticketed event. So you just literally turn up at ULB, and you're at Fosdem. And uh, you got to see the latest Risk Five board running Plasma to... to add in a little bit that Phelan might find exciting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I did. So all of the usual suspects were there with stands, you know, Mozilla, KDE, uh, the GNOME Foundation, Open UK, Postgres, MariaDB, UbiPorts had a stand there. Gentoo even had a stand there. Debian, you know, all of the usual suspects had stands there. But yeah, the KDE stand was particularly popular because they had a Vision 5 board that was running Plasma. And it was running GCompre, which is kind of like a 2D kids game and they had sort of a gyroscope controller, for want of a better word, that you could use to play um, some basic 2D kids games with it. And yeah, I was quite impressed at the performance of it. Like, things took a little while to load, but once they were loaded in, yeah, it was perfectly usable. So it was a good sign that, uh, yeah, things are moving along nicely in the RISC-V space. I think that may see the first of us to have actually had hands-on with a RISC-V device, unless you have, Don. Nope. I had experience with that last time I went to Fosdem. They already had a RISC-V board there, but... That one had an external GPU connected over a crazy PCI Express link. This time, the GPU was integrated. Yeah, it was using all the integrated hardware. And uh, yeah, I've got to say, it's uh, looking positive. Yeah, from what I've seen, it's somewhere between a Pi 3 and Pi 4 in terms of performance. And to me, it looked like the first one that is making a stride, if you see what I mean. There's been some with kind of a one gigahertz cores and kind of concept hardware. This is the first board that I've personally seen released that looks like it's driving towards a usable SBC that's more like a Pi or something similar. Yeah, I mean, it was a 1.5 gigahertz SOC, 8 gigs of RAM, was running from an SD card, which might explain some of the slow loading times that I saw. But yeah, it was pretty promising. So do you think that it was just fully back to normal then? Yeah, it very much felt like it. There seemed to be as many people there as there were last time I went in 2020. Yeah, very much felt back to normal. I was a little bit more cautious about not going into some of the really, really packed rooms, but I guess it's very much an at-your-own-risk, and you've got to judge with your level of comfort. Yeah, I didn't see much masking in photos, for example. Yeah, and they can't make people wear masks, right? But yeah, there were people wearing masks, but it was very much the exception rather than the rule. Would you go again? Yeah, I would. I think it's... It's a good conference to go to, and particularly if you're already in London or already in Western Europe, it's not too difficult to get to. Like, I just dumped on the Eurostar and it was two hours. wasn't too bad at all. So yeah, time permitting, I would return. Right, well, we better get out of here then. Remember, you can email in show at linuxafterdark.net. We'll be back in two weeks, but until then, I've been Joe. I've been Chris. I've been Gary. And I've been Dalton. See you later. <laughs> <laughs>